Tonight we are going to think for a few moments about Paul and the familiar account of his conversion in Acts 9 and Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Over in Second Timothy, the third chapter, we read about the last days that we're living in now. Three times in these letters to this young preacher, Paul deals with certain trends and certain conditions. In the first epistle in chapter 6, he deals with the peril of things. We brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and raiment, let us be there with content, and so on. The love of money is the root of all evil. And then he makes this little turn, but thou, and some of the translators put it, but as for you, as for you, you hid in another direction. And then in the third chapter, he deals with the times, and you're familiar with that catalog of the characteristics of the last days. When men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, and all the rest of it. But when you get down to the 14th verse again, but as for you, continue in the things that you've learned and have been assured of. And then in the fourth chapter, has to do with the perils concerning the truth. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. But as for you, watch in all things. In your afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Well, we're living in these days that Paul was writing about. We have his example, as he said here, said, you know my example, how I have lived. And since we know his example, we have a responsibility to follow this example. Paul's life falls apart into certain experiences. I know that experience is not everything, but a lot of Bible truth never gets translated into life. And as we've said already, a lot of Bible teaching amounts to swimming lessons on dry land. The Great Commission says, go ye into all the world, all teaching, all things that I have commanded you know. That's what it says. It's not the dissemination of information that's our mission. 
I have asked all over this country, I've read the Great Commission, and I've left out two words on purpose every time I read it. Then I ask them what two words did I leave out, and never yet have I found more than half a dozen people in any congregation of any size that even noticed that I left them out. They're the two words to observe. We're not just to teach the things commanded, period. We're to teach them to be sure they don't know how to observe them if they don't know what they are. But we are to teach them to do them. You've not learned the truth unless you've learned to do it. You've not taught it to your Sunday school class until you've taught them to do it, to observe it. Some know so much about doctrine, an encyclopedia wouldn't hold it. But what they know about experience, you could put in a pocket notebook. They're afflicted with shade tree theology and rock and chair religion. Like the man whose suitcase was covered with foreign hotel labels and he'd never been out of the county. Paul knew by experience, and the first experience was a confrontation with Christ. And I've just read about it. He met Jesus and asked a who question and a what question. Who art thou, Lord? What would you have me to do? Now, you notice Lord comes last in the first question and first in the second question. And when you meet the Lord, he ought always come first. Paul knew whose he was and whom he served. He didn't ask the Lord why. I've been preparing and trying to preach a message lately on my God and why. And anyone who has been through a period of trial and tribulation has been tempted to ask, my God, why? Some of you have. And I suspect there are people looking at me tonight who have been through a time in your life and about all you could say is, my God, why? If you've ever walked through a hospital for crippled and deformed children and seen those poor little twisted bodies, if you've got any heart in you at all, you've come out saying, my God, why? Or the other end of the spectrum, an old folks' home, those poor vegetables who can't live and can't die either one. And you've come out saying, I just don't get it, my God, why? Or if you have held on to the hand of a dying dear one and in spite of all that prayer and physicians could do, You've watched them waste away. My God, why? Well, it was asked one time by my Lord, the only record of a why from the lips of Jesus, really. You know, it's the one from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he asked it once that we may never ask it. And all our whys are wrapped up in that one why. Calvary. Thomas Chalmers, it was said of him that he was one man who had an original experience of Jesus Christ. Some people don't have an original experience. They have a mosaic of other people's experiences they've read about. Secondhand, by proxy, canned goods, Christian experience. They don't have one of their own. Have you noticed that Paul's companions stood speechless and heard the voice, saw the light, and were afraid? They were there when it happened, but nothing happened to them, really. 
They didn't hear the voice, actually. They didn't answer the summons. Some people never get any closer to a miracle than the general vicinity. They were in the neighborhood of a miracle, but it didn't happen to them. Now, Paul met Jesus personally. Have you? Make sure you've made contact. That woman who pressed through the crowd and touched the hem of my Lord's garment. The others thronged him. She touched him. And there's one verse in that account has both words in it. For Peter said, Lord, thou seest the multitude thronging thee. Now why do you ask who touched me? Well, I think he does that every Sunday morning. I've watched people go out of church and I've said to myself, Lord, help us. We've thronged him. And I wonder if anybody touched him. Thronging won't do it. We've sung about him and heard the preacher talk about him. That won't do it. As many as touched him were made perfectly whole. Now, I used to think that if you don't know the Lord, you can't do anything in the ministry. <laughs> That's very incorrect. You can do wonderful things as a preacher and not know the Lord. He himself said you can prophesy, cast out demons, and do wonderful works. That's a pretty good accomplishment. And hear him say one day, depart, I never knew you. It's amazing what a remarkable preacher you can be as a worker of iniquity. That's what he called him, you workers of iniquity. You mean to tell me a man can prophesy and do wonderful works and be an exorcist? And that's quite in the headlines these days. And yet here our Lord say, I don't know anything about you. You're a worker of iniquity. The second experience of Paul was a crisis with the Spirit, a confrontation with the Christ, a crisis with the Spirit. I know he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit on the day of his conversion. I know he was filled with the Holy Spirit when Ananias came to see him. But Romans 7 and 8 tell us about a defeated Paul who found deliverance through the power of the Spirit. Whether the filling is for power in service or empowering for victorious living, the records are full of experiences where men of God already saved came to a crisis and found the way out of the wilderness into the promised land through the power of the Spirit of God. I won't give their names, it will sound like a who's who of great Christians. Now they could have gotten it all at conversion, but they didn't. Uh, that doesn't mean that God has partitioned it all off that way, but that's the way it is with some people's experience. The work of the Holy Spirit is neglected in favor of other subjects. Dr. Mullins, one of our Southern Baptist leaders of times past, laments the fact that our statement of faith does not have a separate article on the work of the Holy Spirit. Wonders if that's indicative of our weakness on the subject. Some have been scared away from the truth by fanatics rolling in the hay and foaming at the mouth. Some are so scared they'll get out on a limb they never get up the tree. And some are so stubborn they'd rather miss a blessing than give up a prejudice. But whatever you call it, consecration, the full surrender, victorious life, filling of the Spirit, I'm not interested in labeling it. But men better than we'll ever be have dated their effective ministry to a crisis when they came out of brokenness into blessedness by letting the Holy Spirit resident becoming the Holy Spirit president. 
I remember when I went to Charleston as pastor, I was exercised about the work of the Spirit. I was aware of a great lack in my own life. I didn't know who to talk to. Preachers have to be careful about who they go to for counsel. Word gets around and everything's twisted clear out of context. I had the Lord, yes, but I needed some help besides the Lord, as we do so many ways. And dear old Granny Russell was living there. I went to see Granny Russell. She knew the Lord. She gave me that book, Deeper Experiences of Famous Christians, a book that has helped me more, or did then, than any book of its kind, a compilation of the experiences, different Christians. I took it home, couldn't go to sleep till I had read it, and then couldn't go to sleep because I had read it. <laughs> and I walked up and down the ocean beach praying out loud. It's a good place to pray. Nobody can hear you. I do all my singing along the ocean beach. <laughs> and I was saying, Lord, whatever is true to the word of God and whatever I need, I want. Now, I don't want any wildfire. Whatever I need and whatever you want me to have about this. The Lord led me to John 7, 37, 39. Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And I did thirst. And he said, furthermore, if we drink of that water from within us shall flow rivers of living water. I took him up on that verse. Didn't see any visions, hear any voices, dream any dreams. But it made a difference. I don't know where Paul had this experience, whether it was in Arabia, whereas... Old Alexander White has it. He went with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms in his knapsack, came back with Romans and Ephesians and Colossians in his heart. That was quite a trip. Now, I don't know how it was with you, if you had it. Sometimes such an experience is like a cyclone. Sometimes it's like an autumn sunset. But I know one thing. It's a fine day for a Christian when he learns that Jesus did not come down here to take our part, but to take our place. And that there is one called the great helper, called alongside the help, who makes him real as we walk with the Lord in the light of his word. I like to hear John Church preach. He's a Wesleyan Methodist. He's getting old like myself. Maybe he hasn't got quite as big a head of steam as he used to have, but I like to hear him preach. Great old preacher, and he's a skinny, ascetic-looking specimen, sort of like myself, looked like the wind blew him away. But he tells about one time he went to a log rolling back in the wooded district. You know, they put the log on three poles, and the fellow at each end of the pole, they carry the log. Said the fellow they put beside me was a huge, husky fellow. And imagine me on the other side of that log and the other end of that pole. And we started, and I hadn't taken three steps. He said, till my muscles were taut and my nerves were tense and the sweat popped out on my brow and my eyes bulged. And I didn't think I'd make it three steps more when he whispered to me and said, roll a little more over on me. And he said, I took him up on it. By the time we got where we were going, I had rolled all of it over on him. <laughs> But John Church said there was a time in my life when I couldn't carry my load. I had too much. 
and I was about to go down. And I read in my Bible, Roll thy burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. And he said, I started right then. And I've learned that there's one on the other side called alongside the help. You just roll it on him. And I want to testify tonight. And I know what he means. I don't care what you call it. When you come to that blessed place where you realize that you have a helper, that the comforter has come. Uh, I know old Bud Robinson was a second blessing man. Well, I don't care what you call it. Somebody said to him, Uncle Bud, I've had the tenth blessing and the hundredth blessing and the thousandth blessing. Well, he said, if you've had that many, you ought to mind me having just two. <laughs> I don't care what you call it. If you've learned that there's one walking alongside you, but his business is not to glorify himself, but to magnify Jesus. Now, a lot of, we're getting in a lot of trouble today about the Holy Spirit because we've forgotten what F.B. Meyer said. He said, never make the Holy Spirit the figurehead in any movement. If you do that, you get in trouble because the business of the Holy Spirit is to testify of Jesus, make him a living, bright reality, more precious to faith's vision, keen than any outward object seen. In the third place, Paul faced a contention in the church. He had a confrontation with Christ, a crisis with the Spirit, and then he faced church trouble. Acts 15, the question of Gentile circumcision came up. Paul went up to Jerusalem to the council of the church, and he said there were some folks who were somewhat, now I know that the Greek scholars tell me that doesn't really mean what it sounds in the old King James, as though they were the big shots up at Jerusalem, and Paul was referring. Oh, no, it doesn't mean that. They were somewhat, but I do use it sometimes the other way just for fun and myself. I get tangled up sometimes with these fellows that are somewhat. And you have, too, with these somewhat folks in the church. Well, it was a serious hour. You could have split that church wide open, but thank God the Holy Spirit was in control. I'm not concerned with the details, but in the life of any preacher and Christian, there will come sooner or later the time when you will face some kind of contention in the church, local church, or even the denomination. There never were as many naughty questions as today. Preachers lie awake nights over it, trying to untie knots that maybe they ought to cut. And more than one finds it necessary for his wife's health, if for no other reason, to move from one peculiar situation to another peculiar situation. <laughs> there is no uniform rule that covers all these situations, but there are two kinds of division in the New Testament. There was a division of the people on account of him. John 7, 43, 9, 16, and 10, 19. Old Mordecai Ham used to preach up a storm on those verses. There was a division of the people on account of him, but Romans 16, 17, mark them which caused divisions among you. Now, if the division in the fellowship or if the division that you're having some experience with is on account of Jesus, that's one thing. But if it's on account of somebody, that's another thing. And the word of God warns against these troublemakers and says, avoid them. Some folks are specialists at causing division in the church, and they're to be avoided. The only healthy division is 
on account of Jesus Christ. And of course, some folks have that for an excuse. They say it is on account of Jesus, but they belong to those dear souls that are illustrated by the sign in front of a church that said Jesus only, and the storm came one night, blew out the first three letters and left us only. And I've been in many a church where I think the first three letters have been blown out. I've watched some of these come outs, and when you study the outcome of the come out, you'll understand why we're to watch them and avoid them. These professional quitters who separate for the fun of it, it sometimes looks like, Jesus never separated them, religious snobs, and 25 of them in any church can give more trouble than all the publicans and sinners. These dear souls that never find a church good enough for them, never find a preacher good enough, always hopping around like the fellow who had belonged already to four or five different denominations and said to his pastor pro tem, because any pastor he had was pro tem, he said, I'm thinking about making another move. Well, he said, never does any harm to change labels on an empty bottle. <laughs> I think there are times when we ought to merge and times when we ought to submerge and times when we ought to emerge. But be sure you know which. If it's for Jesus' sake, that's one thing to be sure. The Bible says of Babylon, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partaker of her sins and that you receive none of her plagues. But just make sure that you don't end up so selfish, that you're like these matches that won't strike except on the box they're in. Be a little broader than that, please, because it's dangerous to Christian testimony. And then, of course, Paul had a clash with personalities. And we'll have that somewhere down the road. He had a run-in with Barnabas and John Mark, Campbell Morgan emphasizes the fact that the Greek here means a paroxysm. That was pretty bad. It's interesting to know that such saints could have a head-on collision, but I'm glad the story has a happy ending. There's something to be said for all three participants in this trouble. Paul meant business, and you have to be careful about these quitters that turn their back on the work of the Lord. John Mark at the heart of the matter was all right. His last state was better than the first. He did well on the second chance. And I like Barnabas in this case, best of all, somebody has called him the friend of the suspected. He always, he took up for Paul when nobody else would. Took up for John Mark when nobody else would. Thank God for friends who don't give us up when we miss the bowl. Some of us are still in the game tonight because we had a Barnabas. And if Barnabas had sided with Paul, young Mark might have been given up for good. Paul was a great man, but he wasn't always right. Naaman's servant, you know, is sometimes wiser than his master. That servant said, well, now, if the prophet had asked you to do some big thing, you'd have done it. Looks like you wouldn't mind taking a few ducks in that muddy water out there and see what might happen. Don't forget, Barnabas had stood by Paul when nobody else would. Be careful, beloved, how you size people up and mark them as no good. They may turn out later to be profitable for the ministry. I'm not capable of sizing up my own work. You're not capable of sizing up any preacher's work to his own master he standeth or he falleth. Be careful about run-ins, one of the tragedies of the ministry. 
His broken fellowships, wrecked friendships. Every little while I hear of godly men who can't get along anymore, and if they don't break each other's heads, they do break each other's hearts. Don't let it uh, discourage you too much, these fusses. They've always had them, and I suppose always will. And if you must disagree, give John Mark a chance to make good. And if he does, be big enough to admit you were mistaken. Better still, if a fellow has failed on first try, give him a break like Barnabas. He may turn out to be one of God's heroes of the second chance. Do you remember that when John Wesley started out, one of the greatest preachers in England said this, Wesley and his lay lovers go forth to poison the minds of men, Wesley's ragged legion of preaching tinkers and scavengers and draymen and chimney sweepers. That was one great preacher talking about another one. Doesn't sound too encouraging, does it? So they've always done it, evidently, and that doesn't excuse it by any means. Then there was a conflict in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, the thorn in the flesh. He hits top and bottom in one chapter, height and depth, and thank God neither one can separate us from the love of God. The brethren have argued about this thorn in the flesh. I don't know what it was. It may have been my thorn, it may have been your thorn, but what Paul wanted was subtraction. What he got was addition, more grace. Don't worry too much about one thorn, dear friend. Your Savior wore a crown made of them. It's doubtful if any saint ever got anywhere much without one. We sometimes say, oh, what David Brainerd might have been if he hadn't had tuberculosis. What would Cowper have written if he'd had a clear mind? Cruden, he might have given us more than a concordance if he'd had a clear working brain. What Spurgeon might have done without all that gout that drove him away from his pulpit again and again? Oh, what Fanny Crosby might have written without her blindness? She might not have written anything. Who knows? Whatever our grief can become our glory, Paul's thorn was an antidote. Lest I be exalted above measure, God gave me an antidote against that poison. Now, he wasn't delivered, but he was granted enough grace to out-travel and out-preach and out-write and out-perform any preacher of his time or any other time. That's a pretty valuable thorn after all. And what's the secret? My strength is made perfect in weakness. Some of us are getting old, and this is precious to us. <laughs> after you get by that Bible mark of three score and ten, you begin counting them pretty carefully. And then on. We had a lot of dear folks here this week. They come every year to Ben Lippin, these dear older folks. And I never, may the Lord ever keep me from making any remark about these old ladies' gatherings and so on. I tell you, some of them have supported the work of God when everybody else had played out at the business. I know I'm not as young as used to be. I told them down in Greensboro Sunday, sitting out on the porch down in Florida a few weeks ago. <laughs> There's a cardinal up in the tree singing, and he sounded to me like he was singing at the top of his voice, Geritol, Geritol, Geritol. I said, shut up, I know I'm getting old, don't tell me. <laughs> well, I'm not as young as I used to be, and sometimes I say, Lord, what am I gonna do? I'm getting out of style, and I don't believe in the new style, and time's running out on me, and then he said, now wait a minute, to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. And when they're weak, they're strong. 
And I've said, Lord, let's make a deal. I've got the weakness and you've got the strength. That ought to make a good team. And you're able to make all grace abound so that I, always having all sufficiency, and all things may abound there, every good word. And finally, a climax in old age, right on top of that, 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 18. He didn't retire to spend it in a cottage overlooking the sea, dreaming in the sunshine, puttering around in the garden. No, I'm not discouraging that. If you can manage it, go ahead. But Paul didn't have it that way. He was in jail, soon to go on trial for his life. And he wrote to Timothy and said, bring me that old cloak and my books. This damp weather's hard on my bursitis, arthritis, neuritis, send me a cloak and the books. It's not a disgrace for a preacher to be in jail if it's under the proper circumstances. If times continue, some of us may join the apostolic succession. Paul and Bunyan set us a good precedent. The worst part is that he was left alone by all his friends. Demas has gone back to the world. We've had a lot of Demases in the ministry. I don't know what it was out there in the world that got him, but he went back. And don't forget that the word Demas means popular. That's lured many a preacher back to this world. And Crescens and Titus were gone. No man stood with me, but God did not forsake me. Life takes strange turns. If you have the idea that everybody who's been faithful to Jesus all their life will be rewarded by a peaceful old age in serene contentment, you'd better be prepared for a rude awakening. Some of them do end up that way, and that's wonderful, but not all. I know some saints in their 80s who've had more heartache and trouble in the last 10 years than they ever had all before. And one great old saint said, the farther I go, the more I meet with. And maybe you were sitting here tonight saying, I thought that if we were faithful to Jesus that everything would end up in the bliss of a golden sunset, everything in good shape. No, no, the Bible didn't say any such thing. In the world ye shall have pressure. That's what it really says. This world's not your rest. It gets pretty rough sometimes, but it takes a grindstone to put an edge on an axe. You can't sharpen an axe on a pound of butter. It takes hardship. The lives of God's people don't end in storybook style in this world. Last chapter may be the darkest, and it may be the brightest. You just let God take care of that. Paul was not the success type. His bodily presence is weak. I get a lot of encouragement out of that. He wasn't good looking. It's dangerous to be a good-looking preacher because his profile may raise expectations that his preaching won't justify. <laughs> Sometimes God makes a good-looking man just to relieve the monotony. <laughs> I wouldn't know, but they said he's nothing to look at. And he can't talk. His speech is contempt. And he doesn't have any home, no certain dwelling place. Never would have made it in who's who. That's a poor image, you think. But it's the image of the greatest preacher of all time. And I'm so glad that while God may put some of us to bed in the dark, 
He'll wake us all up in the morning. Paul said, Henceforth there is laid up a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And thank God for that little line that says, And not me only. That lets you in. But one fact is crystal clear. No man stood with me, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me. Paul forsook him not. God forsook him not because Paul was in fellowship. Even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And then when gray hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. I give Paul credit for one thing. He kept his batting average good to the end of the season. It's a baseball term, but it's a good term for Christian living, too. I've read of a little native girl in a mission field somewhere who had a hard journey to make one day, and they gave her an awfully heavy load to carry, and she managed. But when she got there, she was a Christian just the same. And when she dropped that heavy load, she said, Hallelujah, I'm tired. <laughs> and if you want to know how I feel tonight, Hallelujah, I'm tired. <laughs> and I've got three more weeks of preaching ahead in a row. And I believe I'll be tireder after that, but there's a compensation in the weariness. So in a contact with Christ and a crisis with the Spirit and a contention in the church and a clash with personalities and a conflict in the flesh and a climax in old age, I call that a great life. And he came through every bit of it victoriously, and so may we, some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood, some through great sorrow that God gives us all in the night season and all the day long. Now, some of these experiences you must have and some you may have. But they can all be fitted into one design. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the cold according to his purpose. We don't hear much about that. People quote the first part of that verse so much, but I don't hear much about the purpose. Well, what was it? You read about it in the very same passage. We were predestinated. What for? I've heard a lot of sermons trying to explain predestination. That's the reason why I quit. But I know the purpose of it that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God predestinated you and saved you to make you like Jesus. Are you any more like him now than you were a few years ago? Don't you think you ought to be? Easier to get along with than you were years ago? Less crabbed? You look like you've been in the promised land. You've got the grapes of Eskar, figs and pomegranates. Some of them been over there and all they got to show for is crab apples. How about it? That's what it's all about, beloved. God didn't save us to make us successful. He didn't save us to make us happy even. He saved us to make us holy. And some of Paul's experiences do not contribute to success. And some of them do not contribute to happiness. But all of them contribute to holiness. And that's why it's the way it is. I read of somebody trying to put together a map of the United States, and they had trouble. Maine would wind up beside Montana, and Mississippi would show up beside Utah, and finally in desperation, they turned it over, and they realized there was a picture of George Washington on the other side. 
And when they got the face of the father of the country together, they had the map together on the other side. If you'll look full in his wonderful face, get better acquainted with him, all your jigsaw puzzle problems that worry you so much will come together on the other side. Because by him all things consist, and we are complete in him. Let us stand. We thank thee for our forebears who have gone along the road and left us such worthy examples. We thank thee, our Father, for Paul, but above all for our Lord, and help us to walk in his footsteps so that we may leave tracks behind us that others can profitably walk in because we walk in his tracks and his steps as we're bidden to do. Help us to profit from this meditation together now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.